0: Welcome to Corrosion Chronicles, an original podcast series produced by the Materials Technology Institute. I'm Heather Elaine, the Executive Director of MTI, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Cook, material specialist with the Dow Chemical Company. Hey, Mark.
1: Hey, Heather. Hey, uh, before we get started, I got a question for you. I know the TAC meeting's coming up soon in Milwaukee, and I heard there's going to be a run and maybe uh, MTI running hats?
0: There is going to be the next mti 5k run in milwaukee and it's going to be so much fun we are doing running hats this year with the mti logo on it it's going to be a coveted collector item these are going to be a hot ticket item
1: i can't make the meeting so i need you to like stash one for me is that possible
0: (laughs) these are really exclusive for people that actually come to the meeting mark
1: come on buddy come on
0: as my co-host i'll see what i can do (laughs) our guest today is lisa desai from fodler And we're really happy to have Lisa with us today. Lisa, are you coming to the meeting? And are you going to do the 5k run?
2: I will be at the meeting. And you might have
0: just talked me into doing the run because I think I want one of these hats. You definitely need one of the hats. It's a run walk. I mean, lots of options there. We're really happy to have you on our show today. Um, Lisa started her career at Edlon, which is the fluoropolymer division of Fodler as an applications engineer. She has a chemical engineering degree from Penn State University. But now she's the head of technology sales for GMM Fodler Americas, responsible for a variety of their technologies, including their glass-lined equipment, which is our topic today. So we're thrilled to have you here on our podcast to talk about glass-lined equipment today, Lisa. Thanks for having me, Heather, and, and more.
1: So Lisa, I'll, I'll start off. Let's just describe briefly what glass-lined equipment is for anyone that's not familiar with it.
2: Sure. So glass-lined steel is a combination uh, where you start with a pressure vessel as your substrate, typically carbon steel, and then you apply a glass lining, which you may have also heard of a term. And now all the wetted surfaces of the pressure vessel are aligned with this glass lined material. And it's really that combination and strength of the metal substrate and the glass lining that really give the final product glass lined steel.
1: I think you got to talk about the firing process. when. Yeah, uh, yeah I do. I, do. I,
2: I thought you were going to mention that. So. <laughs> Mark, I know you've had the opportunity to visit a glass lining factory so you've seen you know the process
1: they kept promising me that we were going to see something come out of the oven and I, i'll bet i was there five times before i finally got to see it come out but uh, it was worth the wait it, it's pretty amazing when you see these equipment come out cherry red they're so hot and you can feel the heat it gives you a new respect or appreciation for the process
2: Yeah, that's definitely a very uh, unique thing with glass-lined equipment. It's fired in the furnace at a really high temperature, so it comes out glowing red. Like you said, you can feel it. You can see it. If anyone's interested and you haven't had a chance to see it at the factory, there are some really cool YouTube videos out there of the cherry red hot
0: glass-lined steel vessel.
1: Oh, that's a good idea.
0: We can put the link to one of those videos in the show notes.
1: So another thing that fascinated me about the fabrication process that i didn't anticipate was the way the nozzles are flared out of the shell and you know i I understand that's because you need a really generous radius for the for the glass lining but uh that's that's an interesting process to watch
2: yeah mark the process you described is actually called swaging and it's really critical to have a a really generous radius where you have connections you know between a nozzle stub and the top head for example You're wanting to apply that glass lining it's got to have a generous radius so that when the glass adheres to the metal and bonds it gets a good bond without creating a stress
1: point while we're talking about my tour of uh, glass shops and the cool stuff i've seen there the other thing i wanted to mention that i found just fascinating was the coating process itself i guess you're going to get into the fact that it's multiple coats but just the skill level of the folks applying the frit the spraying process itself is just amazing i mean uh Those guys have to be among some of the most skilled coders in the world.
2: Yeah. Spraying glass is really an art. A lot of people start off as an apprentice and build their way up and develop skills over years. It's a very manual process. There is no automated robotic spraying application. It's done by hand, and a lot of skill goes into that. And each piece is unique. You know, it's uniformly sprayed. You've got to be conscious of getting good thickness and good uniformity. But doing it over a multiple-layer process, and
0: that does take a lot of skill to develop.
1: In a really complex geometry.
0: Great. So when would you use glass over other materials of construction options? Good question, Heather. So glass is
2: a really universal, versatile uh, material of construction. You know, it's got great corrosion-resistant properties, which is why it's utilized like quite commonly. Really, the only material that's comparable in terms of corrosion resistance over a similar pH range is Tantalum. So um, if you're looking for cost-effective, high durability material that's good in in corrosive services, glass is a great option that's also very economical compared to a lot of other materials in construction.
0: Is it also used in high-purity situations?
2: It can be. There are definitely room for glass in the pharmaceutical and high-purity environments. Pharmaceutical, in particular, is a very much place where glass line equipment is used. When you're talking about ultra high purity you know you may actually go look at a fluoropolymer instead but for medium levels of high purity glass is a good option all
0: right cool and what about repairing it what are your options if it gets a crack or sure
2: so that brings up a good point you know a lot of people think glass and they think hey it's fragile it might break you know you see all these handle with care type uh, disclaimers when you think of something that's traditionally a glass material Glass-lined equipment isn't like that. It's not really as fragile as it may seem because there's a really strong bond between the carbon steel and the glass lining. Not to say that repairs may not be needed. You know, things do happen. A lot of times impact is probably the biggest area where you might see a concern for breakage of glass-lined equipment. There's a couple of different ways that we can repair. You can use something called a shield or a plug. Those terms may have been heard of, you know, in industry. A lot of times you're repairing glass lining with another material of construction, such as tantalum or even fluoropolymer or PTFE, you want to use materials that are similarly compatible. That's why, you know, you're using glass lining material in the first place because you need that corrosion resistance. You use similar materials to repair it. It's really important during a repair to make sure that it's done by somebody that is experienced, that has the skills to do the repair. So either an OEM or, you know, a service contractor that has the experience Trying to do glass line repair uh, on your own is.
1: I want to chime in one one second and say I get questions a lot within my company. Uh, people saying, "Hey, we got this glass vessel. We've got a problem. We just need to put a little more glass back on it. Can you can you hook us up?" And, <laughs> and it's good to understand that it's you're using other materials, and it tends to be more of a mechanical type of fix. And at it this it's not really a proven technology to just apply more glass in the field.
2: Correct. Unfortunately, you you can't bring a furnace out into the field to spray a little bit more glass on and and fix it right up. So it is a mechanical repair using another material of construction or a combination of materials to do that repair in the field. Those repairs, they can work. They can work and get you out of a bind, especially if you're in a critical situation where you just need to keep running, finish up a batch or finish up a, a production run. But it, it is a good idea to keep in mind that those are temporary repairs, you know, however long that temporary fix may last. And you should think about what the next step is. Sometimes repair isn't the best option, right? It may not be feasible depending on the type of repair, the spot where it's located or the extent of it, or it just may not be economical. In that case, you can
0: consider something like re I guess I'd like to discuss what types of damage can occur to the glass besides small chips. What are the weaknesses? What are the vulnerabilities of glassware
2: So a couple of different things. Impact damage, as I mentioned, that tends to be more mechanical. You can also get uh, damage from thermal shock or thermal stresses. Thermal shock occurs when you have a strong temperature differential between the inside and the outside, right? You're either introducing a hot fluid into a cold vessel or a cold fluid into a hot vessel. Those are things that really need to be thought through. There is a good rule of thumb that the temperature differential for glass-lined equipment should be no more than 260 degrees Fahrenheit between the inner and outer surfaces. So that's a good thing to keep in mind.
1: Which is actually a lot, right? You compare that to some other materials of construction, and it, it's actually pretty resistant to thermal shock compared to you the know, FRP, for example.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, design considerations that go into you know, the basis of the glass line equipment. So it is good for withstanding a lot of things, but there are just things you need to be aware of that, you know, that could occur. And it's important to follow the guidelines that are out there. There are guidelines for thermal shock and, you know, what temperature you can use in the jacket versus inside the vessel.
1: I think it's a good time to mention there's an MTI reference on glass line steel damage mechanisms that for, for my role, it's one of the best uh, MTI references we've got. I I love that book and have and used it a ton. It's got good images and a uh, great description of every damage mechanism. Yeah. yeah. So, Lisa, you mentioned reglass just offhand, and I wonder how many people know about that. Is that, I mean, basically you're talking about just taking the old vessel and sending it back to you guys and having glass applied again, right? Does that make sense? Why would you do that instead of just getting a new vessel?
2: Sure. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's quite common. Bringing an old vessel back, uh, it'll go through a full, thorough inspection. So the glass will be removed, the jacket will be removed, the metal vessel will be inspected to ensure that there's still a good amount of steel and that it's got not not having corrosion of the metal itself. And then applying the glass lining uh, again. And
1: um well, let's still, say you know, know. if I've got holes in my steel, I mean, odds are, if the glass failed, I might have corroded right through the vessel. At that right. point, you can't reglass it, can I?
2: You can actually repair the metal. You know, you can do metal repair on it first and then put re on. The reason a lot of people consider re is, you know, it's an economical option compared to buying new. Oftentimes, it's also a faster process than buying new vessels. You know, you, you might want to say uh, you need something back in, you know, 12, 14, 16 weeks, something like that, because your process requires you to be up and running, waiting for a new vessel, you're building head, you know, you're building shells. You're constructing the entire carbon steel vessel and then putting it through the lining process, the reglassing process cuts down some of that fabrication time.
1: As you know, because you've worked with me for a long time, I'm actually gonna need it in four weeks, Lisa. That's <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: That's a little bit tougher to achieve, Mark. Especially a larger and larger with vessels. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: In the sites that I was supporting with glassland vessels, we always had spares of the glassland equipment. And so once we took one out, we sent it out for re and put the other one in, and it was just sort of always an, a spare in the in the lay-down yard. Is that common? I think
2: more and more people are conscious with budgets and keeping the amount of spares that are desirable versus what you should have isn't as prevalent as it used to be, perhaps. But that's why re is also good. You know, we, we try to see if we can Meet the timeline needs of a particular shutdown or a particular changeout process by having that reglassing option available.
0: So you can actually pull it out during a shutdown, and if and within a couple of weeks, get a new one back.
2: Correct. Wow. It's also good to check with the OEMs of what stock vessels you know an OEM might keep. You know, a lot of OEMs do keep stock on hand for easy changeouts, and that way you have some options. You know, sometimes in combination, re-glassing, getting a spare, and looking at a new vessel. You know, it really depends on. The size the design criteria and what the needs are
1: my company tends to have a strong spares program for glass line steel as well partly because it allows you to use re as an option you know we usually can't wait pull the vessel out and wait for it to get re but if we have a spare then we can can swap them back and forth and you send the one you took out back and get it re and then put it back in inventory as your spare and mm-hmm. glass like you mentioned earlier glass is so economical that you can even at a capital project stage, you can buy the new equipment and the spares a lot of times for cheaper than the other options that are out there in terms of uh, other materials construction. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that philosophy. So you mentioned a little bit about the process to lining the vessel, you know, the spraying, but I, I think it'd be worth getting into that a little bit, just so that end users that right. are near with it understand that it's kind of a manual process and there's multiple steps.
2: Yeah. I think we started talking at the beginning you know it's it's critical that you think about not only the glass lining but also the steel fabrication because as a combined unit that's really what gives glass lined steel its full strength and value so you know you're starting with steel substrate it's prepared material that's specifically designed for glass lined equipment you pay specific attention to swaging and radiusing of the nozzles and the the interfaces between you know joints Preparation of the steel, once it's put together, then you sandblast, right? Just think about how you're preparing a wall for accepting paint, right? You're preparing the surface, you're preparing the, the surface of a vessel to accept the glass lining. Then the glass is applied in layers. So you'll start with something called a ground coat layer and followed up by cover coats. And these are applied in successive layers to build up a total glass lining thickness, generally between a nominal 40 to 90 mils.
1: And so the ground coat that you mentioned, that's one or two coats. And is there a thickness range for that?
2: Correct. On average, you're getting about a 20 mil ground coat. So one or two layers to achieve that. And then you're following it up with successive layers of cover coats.
1: And all the cover coat layers are uniform, right? That's the same glass. So from, say, 20 mils up to the 40 to 90, that's all the, the same sub cover glass. Coat, yeah, mm-hmm. on a standard binding.
2: Yep. And there are different types of glass that are out there just for information purposes. You know, you'll see universal acceptable glass, which is good for kind of your general purpose, all around equipment. There are special glasses available if there's abrasion resistance that may be more of a concern, pharmaceutical glasses that are out there, glasses made specifically for stainless steel substrates in, again, cryogenic or pharmaceutical type applications where carbon steel substrate may not be desirable. There's a number of different types of glass out there.
1: I wanted to step back a little bit on ground coat, just to, for general awareness. The ground coat is does not have the same chemical resistance as the cover coat. Correct.
2: That's correct. The ground coat is effectively used to promote the bond between the steel and the cover coat. So it in itself is not corrosion resistant. Your your primary corrosion resistance is coming from your cover coat layers. Right.
1: So that's that's something I often do education on it in my company. We've got some services where we have a corrosion rate on the glass. And so we we do thickness checking on the glass. And, uh, you know, there, there kind of needs to be some education that we can't go all the way to zero on that glass because at some point you hit ground coat and then uh, you've lost your corrosion resistance.
2: Yeah, again, a general rule of thumb here would be, you know, if you're doing thickness measurements, if you get to about a nominal 30 mil thickness, start thinking about, you know, what your next steps need to be. Because at that point, you know you're getting close to that average of 20 mil ground coat. So you've got about 10 mils of cover coat left, a good corrosion-resistant glass left.
0: So let's talk about inspection. In addition to thickness checks, what other options do you have? And I'm specifically wondering if that ground coat is a different color than the top coats, so that can you tell if you're getting close from a color change, just visual inspection?
2: Yep, actually from a visual standpoint, you will see a color difference in ground coat. You know, your typical cover coat could be a dark blue or a white glass or even a light blue, you know, typically a shade. Uh, Your ground coat is more of a a darker grayish type color. So from a visual inspection standpoint, you know, you want to look for one, if you're starting to see ground coat coming through, you're probably, probably too far gone at that point. But if you see damage, you know, if you see an impact damage or some stress damage and you start to see that it's gone all the way to the ground coat, that's an area of concern. Other things beyond thickness checks or visual inspection would be a spark test. You know, a low voltage DC spark test is something that can be used to look for pinholes or areas of concern during an inspection process. I know a lot of end users may not be comfortable, you know, do they know what to look for? Are they comfortable doing their own inspections? If you're not, you know, a lot of the OEMs offer field service technicians or field service inspection services, as well as a number of qualified uh, contractors.
0: All right. We're going to take just a short break to just hear a word from one of our sponsors. We hope you can all join us June 20th through 22nd in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for our next Ameritech meeting. June 20th, we'll have a high purity processing roundtable with eight hours of content that'll really delve deep into both manufacturing and working with high purity products. June 21st and 22nd, we'll have a variety of technical presentations, project team meetings, and project development work, including a session on PFAS, and the upcoming proposed regulations in Europe and how our industry is considering responding to those. So we hope you can join us. Go to mti-global.org to register.
1: So what I often talk about with glass is, is an Achilles heel. or To me, you know, the biggest issues that I see are with gaskets. So I think we ought to talk about that a little bit. A recommendation, I guess, I give plants that don't have an in-house expert or maintenance crews that are familiar with it is I generally tell them to go ahead and bring techs in, just like you mentioned, for uh, inspection. But for gasket installation, I often recommend that they just bring in uh, a technician from an OEM to install the gasket.
2: Sure. That's a good point you raised, Mark. You know, gaskets for glass-lined equipment are very different from maybe traditional metallic equipment. The glass-lined flanges are specifically designed to except the glass lining. And so the gasketing is also very critical in these areas. You'll often see, you know, envelope gaskets being used with a compressible insert material and, you know, different types of gaskets are out there. But the the key functionality is that you need to make sure you have the gasket sealing for sealing the vessel, but also for maintaining the integrity of the glass lining on that flange surface.
1: Yeah. And I I think uh, something that goes unappreciated from folks that aren't really familiar with glasses, you need to be looking at the flatness of the flange and there's a pretty good chance you're going to be shimming if the flange is above a certain size. Like the cutoff I would typically use would be 18 inches. If you're above that, you really need to be checking for gaps and and potentially adding shims, which if you haven't done that before, it's a good thing to bring in a technician to at least do it once where you can watch and, and learn.
0: But you can't just crank down on that. On those bolts on the,
1: <laughs> you could
2: correct. You want to be really careful with taking your 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 full strength on torque. You know,
1: <laughs> I've always been told by mechanics, you tighten until you hear uh, you hear a crack, and then you back off a <laughs> half a turn.
2: Yeah, you. Mark mentioned shimming. You know, um, flatness with with glass flanges is, is definitely a, an area that. Good to mention, you know, during the firing process, there is definitely some potential for distortion of those flanges, and you may not have a completely flat surface at the end. Shimming is very common, especially, again, if you think about a rule of thumb, about a sixteenth of an inch gap or greater is when you really want to look at doing shimming on those gaskets, especially when you're using an envelope gasket.
1: Sorry, you mentioned distortion. I To me, it's really interesting how that's handled in the manufacturing process, if you would mind going into that a little bit.
2: Sure. So we talked a little bit about the whole glass lining process, but maybe we didn't give a full appreciation. These vessels are fired at a very high temperature and, you know, you're going to have movement of the metal and then the metal in relation to the glass as well. So there's a lot of fixtures that go into place with supporting flanges during the firing process. The larger the flange, the more intricate and more important it is to make sure that you're giving a good support to that flange during the the heating and cooling process so that we try to limit any movement of the metal in relation to its original state because you're you're going through a stress relieving process, right? At, at high firing temperatures, the metal wants to move.
1: And my understanding is you're actually rotating parts from one fire to the next, right? You might have an oriented one direction, one fire, and it's different.
2: Correct. Again, it it all goes into the art of glass-lined equipment, the spraying, the firing, the design. It all works together in trying to make sure that
0: you're ending up with a really robust, you know, good part. So is that something that an owner should inspect for upon receipt of a new vessel? And is that like a rejectable thing if the flange is too out of flat? So there are standards that are developed
2: on a universal basis. The DIN standard is one that's out there that's pretty universally accepted, you know, and and I think you would find that the OEMs are working towards that. Um, A lot of OEMs will do flatness checks um, as part of their initial inspection protocol, and and you can discuss individually what each OEM does as part of your inspection process.
1: Okay. I guess I'd like to add that the the flatness checks are very different from one shop to the next and are very interesting. There's a lot of innovation that goes into that because, you know, you can have huge flanges, like there's some glass line flanges that are seven feet in diameter. And so that's a difficult thing to measure flatness relative to a flat plane on a seven foot diameter flange. And so uh, my advice would be as an end user to get into the details a little bit on that and have your own understanding of what's going on and not just accept at face value what you're being told.
0: I mean, yeah, you've got to have a lot of these vessels have agitators, and so you've got to have at least one flange big enough to get your agitator in and out, right? Correct.
1: So, on flanges, one of my favorite topics is uh, bolting because it is so different on glass line flanges than any other type of flange. That I'd kind of like to talk about that a little bit.
2: Yep, yeah, sure. So, uh, again, with the glassing process, your your flanges are actually you know stub ends, and for smaller nozzles, your typical up through twelve inch you'll see what's called a split flange as the the flange mechanism. And that does use traditional ANSI-type bolting. But on larger flanges, you'll actually see a mechanism called j clamps as the hardware as opposed to drilled flanges and bolting.
1: It, the thing that blows me away on that is a standard ANSI flange, you've got a predetermined number of bolts, and then you decide how tight am I going to make these bolts. And on glass-lined equipment, it's a completely different philosophy. You say okay, this is how tight we're going to make the clamps. Now let's decide how many clamps we're going to have, which, you know what I mean? It's thinking about it in a completely opposite direction, which is interesting because you'll see some flanges where the clamps are spaced. I guess I feel like I've seen eight inches apart between clamps and then other places where the clamps might be an inch, an inch apart.
2: Yeah. So the number of clamps and the size of the clamps is actually uh, determined by the size of the opening and the internal pressure.
1: The other thing I've as I've worked with different plants within my company, I've uh, come to recognize that it's treated differently in the U.S. versus Europe. In the U.S., they tend to say, okay, if you've got a one-inch J-clamp, we're going to use this torque. But in Europe, they'll specify different torque values for that same clamp, which was just a big surprise to me, you know, because I kind of went into it assuming that it was done the same way across different different continents, but it's not. Do you know why that could be, or why they do that? Yeah,
2: I, I think what you should keep in mind is, you know, some vessels may be designed to DIN standards versus other vessels would be designed to ASME standards, which would explain the difference between Europe and, you know, the U.S. market, for example. And based on the flange design, your clamps may be different as well. And that that actually brings up another good point that you know you really can't interchange clamps between different manufacturers. It's really important to note that each manufacturer has developed their own designs and they're not interchangeable.
1: Yeah. Speaking of clamps, that's another thing that if you've got glass lined equipment, you really need to get into is clamp management because uh, like for us, we, we don't reuse bolting. We tend to always replace bolts if we're going to reassemble a flange, but clamps at 150 bucks a pop or whatever they can be, we tend to try to reuse those if they're in good condition. Yeah, is you're reusing clamps and you've got different manufacturers of clamps and different sizes, and you kind of have to keep them all separated, and and you want to keep the same number of clamps on it that that's on the drawing. If you're going to reuse clamps, you got 86 on a big flange, and then 14 of them aren't really worthy of being reused. You got to have some new ones, and yeah, that that can be kind of a task. But yeah, can,
2: one thing I would I would suggest or recommend is you know there are different clamp styles available in terms of finishes. So if there is a really a corrosive service or some concern about materials of construction in a facility or a particular project or environment, you know, zinc yellow chromate tends to be a common option for clamps as far as a plating. But there's also xylan coating available. There's nickel plating available. There's also stainless steel clamps. So depending on the, the area that it's being used in, that may be a consideration to make right out of the gate for future maintenance.
1: That's a very good recommendation. We've definitely gone to those island clamps in a lot of applications and had good results with those. I guess just a quick thing on on reuse is uh, we've gotten very rigorous about it. When we re- reuse clamps, we require the nut to be spun off completely. We wire brush the threads. We lube it back. And then the mechanics have to thread the nuts on and take them all the way down the length of the shaft. And if they don't spin freely the whole way down, we don't reuse it. But uh, you know, if you don't do that, you're going to end up wasting money because you know putting a gasket into a glass line piece of equipment's not trivial and if your clamps aren't working perfectly then then you're adding extra problems in and and potentially uh doing the effort twice or three times so we always do that one other thing i want to mention with clamps because i've run into it a few times is some clamps i don't know if it's uh you know where they come from but sometimes we get clamps with cap nuts and i'm sure there's a good reason to have a cap nut on it somewhere or somehow but the stack height on a shimmed gasket is a little bit unpredictable. And I've, I've seen it happen more than a couple of times where the cap notes bottom out and you don't know that cabinet bottomed out, but all of a sudden you're not getting any more torque on the clamps and you get a leak and it's because the cabinet's bottomed out because, you know, there's only so much working like on that J clamp. So I, that'd just be something I'd caution listeners on when they're dealing with class line equipment If you've got cabinets on your J clamps, be very, uh, wary of that and consider that could be a problem when you're trying to assemble that flange. So Heather mentioned agitators earlier. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So people are putting agitators in glass-lined vessels?
2: Yeah, actually, (laughs) (laughs) it's very common for a glass-lined reactor to have glass-lined accessories. So glass-lined mixing systems, you know, agitators are available in one-piece construction, which would be typically a welded piece, like you'd see in an alloy piece of equipment, or two-piece. Unlike in alloy equipment where your two-piece construction, you'd see often that they're bolted, right? You know, you, you want to have some ability to remove and, and add the impellers onto the shaft. With glass-line equipment, there is no bolting. There is a, a two-piece style of agitator called cryolock, which actually relies on a rigid glass-to-glass interface.
1: That is a very cool system.
2: So the, the cryolock agitator, it's based on the premise of having a glass-line shaft and glass-line impellers where the impeller is attached to the shaft. Again, it's a glass-to-glass connection without any type of gasket used. You're actually using liquid nitrogen to freeze the shaft and slide on the impellers and then allow it to expand and you've got that rigid glass-to-glass connection. Again, a really cool novel technology. There's a good YouTube video out there on that if you're not familiar with it and want to see more about how it works. But what it really brings a lot of advantages. You can easily change out impellers, either in the case of you know process change, any type of wear and tear or damage that you would get on an impeller without having to remove an entire agitator from the vessel.
1: I'll make one comment. I've tended in the past to be afraid of glass-lined agitators, dip pipes, baffles, that kind of stuff. And you know, we were thinking it's in a glass vessel, and then we're you know this this thing breaks off, it's going to cause all this damage, and so we tended in the past to use an alloy if we could on those components. And what we found over time is the alloy components, if you don't really look at that flange connection at the top, you've got a huge moment arm there and a lot of opportunity for fatigue. And uh, we've had several, uh, you know, like dip pipes in particular break off near that mounting flange. And there's designs you can do that are going to work, but you got to really scrutinize that connection point or you can have a failure. So, uh, Yeah, I've come around and we tend to use more glass line stuff now than we used to because of that learning.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's a good caution, a good learning. I mean, a lot of people do want to combine, you know, different materials of construction for one reason or another. And I think regardless of the material construction you choose, it's important to know, you know, the nuances of the equipment, the process and how things made up to one another. Because the last thing you want to do is have some fatigue stress on an alloy dip pipe, have it break off and fall and then damage your glass reactor, because then you've got to repair your reactor, and you you've kind of got two issues going on there, uh, a damaged dip pipe and a damaged
0: reactor.
1: And when it's agitated, it's not just one spot usually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, your vessel's going to be trashed. Can we talk about jacketing? Like, how do we introduce heating and cooling to a glass line Yeah, door?
2: so um, jacketing a reactor is very common. You know, you've got your carbon steel glass line reactor body, and then you've got a typically a carbon steel as well, jacket on the exterior. It's welded in the top and the bottom on sealing rings because you can't weld to the equipment after the glass lining has been installed. So you're actually welding away from the main body. You've got to be cautious there too, you know, cleaning of the jacket. Um, It's something to be inspected periodically. It's something to, you want to avoid fouling and build up of what you're running through the jacket, that corrosive media that can get gunked up in there. Mm -hmm. So jacket cleaning is really important. There's some methodologies out there uh, traditionally, you know, uh, acid cleaning of jackets is a, a common protocol that's out there, but it's actually not really good for glass lined equipment. You can actually cause damage to the glass lining on the inside of the vessel by some hydrogen buildup and uh, diffusion through the steel into the glass. So it's really best to use an improved jacket cleaning method for glass lined vessels. Optus Arm is one of those methods that's out there. There are others that are similar, but it would be good to consult with the OEMs before, you know, trying to Do your own jacket cleaning just to make sure you're not creating damage to the glass line steel.
0: Yep. You're really limited on your options there. And I mean, ideally working to improve your water quality so that you don't even get the fouling in the first place. is the way. That's a key. Yeah. And what about thermal shock? Like steam? Can you do steam on a jacket?
2: You can do steam. You can. You can also do hot oil and you just have to design your jacket appropriately for which heating method you're going to use. But again, I, I go, go back to the thermal shock guidelines we talked about earlier. You know, it's important to keep in mind the differential that you don't want to exceed and just follow the guidelines so you're not inadvertently creating a disconnect or a, a differential that's going to create a shock. Because if you shock a glass-lined vessel, chances are you're not having a small area of damage. You're creating a pretty big damage area.
1: The rule of thumb I kind of used, I was in Kentucky at the time. We'd have freezing winter temperatures and I knew I could introduce 25-pound steam to a glass vessel safely, but not 150-pound steam.
0: Did you figure that out the hard way?
1: <laughs> no comment. <laughs> we talked a lot about agitated vessels, but the, the the place I've seen glass used a lot is columns. And so just kind of wanted to bring that up, that that's another place you see glass-lined equipment that can be pretty successful.
2: That's correct. Yeah. Heat exchangers, columns, you know, storage vessels, these are all things that are easily glass-lined Columns in particular are kind of an interesting one because you've got all these features, right? You've got dip pipes, internal flanges, different areas of support, your flatness challenges that that Mark had brought up before. And I know he's had a lot of experience in his facilities, particularly
1: in in looking at these things. The internals are interesting. You know, like you get a tray and a glass column and there's not a way to put a ledge in a column attached to the column wall. So we tended to use, or I guess it's, it's the, the OEM, I think maybe preferred method, right? Is to use these uh, glass line donut rings mm-hmm. uh, sandwiched between the flanges.
2: Correct. Yeah. That is the traditional method to use a support ring or a donut ring that's glass lined, but sandwiches between the flanges. And then your internal actually sits on that because you're not, you're not welding. Like you said, you're not welding a ledge or something like that on the inside of the glass lining. And yeah. um, another option that's actually, a out there is using dummy nozzles and pins, you know, so you're not having to worry about extra stack up between the flanges where you've got a gasket below this donut support ring and gasket above and creating more potential for leaks. So by using these pin method, you're eliminating some of those potential leak points and uh, still able to support the internal.
1: I've seen that design and and been very happy with its performance, the, the pins and dummy nozzles. If you don't have to seal, if you if the tray has to seal it's if it's a collector or something uh, another method we've tended to use is to actually sandwich the tray deck in between the column flanges that can be problematic you need to look at the material that's being sandwiched in between there and it's rigidity because the gasketing can get weird because you've got a gasket above and below it and shimming mm-hmm. you know and and is that tray deck going to conform or not and then the other problem we've had is thermal expansion you know if that tray deck tries to grow or shrink it could either uh, damage the tray or warp it. Um, we've had, you know,
2: yeah, a lot of times your internals are, you know, ceramic or a uh, PTFE, right? All of the fluoropolymer internals are very common in glass lined columns. So you've got a lot of different elements going on with, and yet another material of construction.
0: Can you use packing? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we've got a lot of random packing, both ceramic and plastic. The ceramic, you want to be careful and, and float it in, you know, fill the column with water and, and, uh, load it gently.
2: There is also um, one of the Edlon products actually is a scuff liner, you know, to protect that brass lined column vessel wall from the packing. If it's going to scratch up the glass, you know, you can put a scuff liner in that's a essentially a, a wear part and
0: protects the glass.
1: That's a good investment on ceramic packing for sure. I agree.
0: Lisa, this has been really great. I think we've learned so much about glass-lined equipment and its strengths and limitations. Is there anything you want to add about just the chemical resistance or environments that don't do well with glass-lined equipment?
2: Yes, there's always that bad actor, right? (laughs) So as we said, glass-lining is really, really good over a great range of pHs and chemistries, but there are some negatives, strong caustics and hydrofluoric acid, HF. And if we didn't already learn it from Breaking Bad, (laughs) you know... That, that was dub- my
1: favorite episode. I think that's one of the best things I've ever seen on TV. When, uh, you know, it was Jesse. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you, you didn't want the flimsy little kid pool, so you went and put it in the ceramic bathtub. Amazing. Yes, absolutely amazing.
0: Every materials engineer in the world just cheered during that episode. Yeah.
1: Yep, yep.
0: Amen. Preach it, brother.
1: <laughs>
0: All right. So keep your fluorides away from your glass line equipment.
1: <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for joining us. It was Thank really you for fun. having me. You know, I think I think there's a lot more we could have talked about. I hope everyone got a good appreciation for the basics and the, some, some specifics here.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. It was really fun. Great. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Corrosion Chronicles. Join us each month as we continue our conversations with subject matter experts discussing materials-related challenges and successes of the process industries. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information about the Materials Technology Institute, visit us at mti-global.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.